Well, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. And uh, let me get my glasses on so I can see, because I am old but beautiful. Okay. <clears throat> now, I'm going to date myself this morning, and I'm going to take you back to the early 1970s when I was uh, a young boy, and one of the shows, one of my favorite all-time shows was the Flip Wilson Variety Show. Now, how many of you remember Flip Wilson? Yeah, Google him if you don't. He is hilarious, and he was actually at one point the second, rated, uh, second highest rated uh, TV show at the time. And one of the things Flip Wilson did, he would dress up as this uh, character, Geraldine, dress up as this woman, and he, Geraldine was always getting in trouble and always creating mischief. And they would say, Geraldine, why did you do that at some part of the show? And her, her reply would be what? The devil made me do it. And it'd be hilarious, not only how they said it, what they said. I love Flip Wilson. And I think one of the people that I love, that one of the reasons I love that character and one of the reasons America loved that character is there was one thing for certain. Everyone could relate to the temptation that Geraldine experienced and they could relate to the failing in that temptation. The reason is because temptation is the universal affliction of being human. If you have never been able to relate to a sermon at this church, this morning is your morning. Even as the first man and the first woman enjoy the uninhibited goodness of God's perfection, evil slithered on the ground in paradise, seeking an opportunity to tempt and corrupt. We must remember that before the first sin, there was actually the first temptation. And one of the many beautiful things about our text this morning in Luke 4, <clears throat> 1 through 13, is although Satan was relentless at tempting Jesus, Satan never did make Jesus sin. That's glorious. Because if he had, you and I are in deep trouble. C.S. Lewis speaks about Jesus uh, in his fight with temptation in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded temp to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent of what temptation means. Some of us in our temptation have no fight at all. What is true of Jesus though is not true of us. <clears throat> Dietrich Bonhoeffer <clears throat> is insightful when he speaks of the feebleness of our weakness in temptation as humans. He says, in our members, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. No matter the area of temptation, the joy in God is in course of being extinguished in us, and we seek all of our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us, and the only reality is the devil himself. 
In temptation, Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with utter forgetfulness of God. If you remember the Israelites, you remember one of their great sins was forgetting the goodness of God. And in that, God said over and over in the Old Testament, the word remember, remember, remember. I don't know about you, but when temptation is a weird thing in my life, there's some moments that I'm walking around as clean and clear and good-hearted and in tune with the gospel and walking in my position in Christ and out of the blue, bam, and it hits like a ton of bricks. There are moments where it's just this quiet, slow whisper, but it comes and it always will. So I thought maybe this morning, excuse me, it would be beneficial for us before we dig into the text to just take a couple minutes and look at the anatomy of temptation. The four D's, the desire, the deception, the decision, and the domino effect. One of the things that was encouraging to me, though, as a young believer, is when I heard the words that temptation is not sin. Because look, if it was, (laughs) about 98% of my life is sin. So let's look at this, the desire. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said this in the book of James, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. James is saying that temptation begins with us, that we are born sinners and we love the darkness naturally more than we love the light. So we can't play the blame game. We can't say the devil made me do it. We can't say my wife or husband made me do it. We can't say my neighbor made me do it. It starts with us. And then secondly, in temptation, there's always some kind of deception. There's always some kind of lie that we're believing. Matter of fact, that's one of the reasons we're doing the 60 men showed up at our study Monday night, lies men believe. And the reason is there's always some kind of lie. The word entice that James used in that verse before literally means to bait a hook, to bait a hook. The bait hides the truth of that hook. Now I've caught a lot of fish in my life and I've never caught one on a naked hook. I always put something on that hook to fool them. Look, I've caught them with hot dogs, I've caught them with grapes. I've caught them with a string bean one time. But there's always something, some kind of lie on that hook to hide the truth of that hook. So there's deception in every temptation. Thirdly, there's a decision. James again describes this when he says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. This is an act of our will. We choose to take the bait. There's always a choice involved. No one ever sins and didn't have an option not to sin. It's always a choice. Number four, the domino effect. James 1.15 says, And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin always has a consequence. 
is a loss for you. It affects those who love you, which many times we forget when we're on the cusp of sinning. And it ultimately, as David says in Psalm 51, grieves the very heart of God. So having said that, let's read our text this morning about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, here's the first temptation, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The second temptation, verse 5, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Third temptation, verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him and said, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. <clears throat> you know, there's some, there's some Bible passages that we read that are very familiar to us. And on the surface, they don't seem complex. But as you study them, you find out they are complex. This is one of those. This is one of those for many reasons, but it's one of those One of the reasons it is, is because, I don't know about you, but I've never been tempted to turn rocks into bread. I've never been tempted to jump off the top of Fellowship Bible Church. And I've never been tempted to be the ruler of the world. So we'll be careful this morning, but there is application for us here. Secondly, just a few general observations about this passage is, is verse 4-1, Jesus being full of the Spirit, returning from the Jordan. Luke intends that to be directly connected to Luke 3.22. And in 3.22, right before the genealogy, the last words before the genealogy, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven that said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And then immediately that same spirit that landed on him, the Holy Spirit, led him to the desert. And the first thing the devil says to him is, if you are the son, then act like it. That word if actually means since. There's not a question mark here. The devil knows who he is and Jesus knows who the devil is. So it says, since you are the son, act like it. 
I think the other thing as we set the scene in verses one and two this morning, we need to make sure we understand that Luke is doing what we've been doing for the past four weeks and now the fifth week in identifying Jesus, the long-awaited promised son of the living God. And what he's doing here, he is identifying Jesus with Israel and the first Adam. He identifies Jesus with Israel because you remember Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering and Jesus now is spending 40 days in the wilderness. He's identifying Jesus with the first Adam because the first Adam was tempted in the garden or he's contrasting, if you would, Jesus with the first Adam. The first Adam was tempted in the garden and the second Adam is tempted in the desert. The first Adam had plenty and was surrounded by beauty and had a companion and a wife. In the, the second Adam, Jesus was in a very ugly part of the world, in want, hungry, and alone. The first Adam sinned and brought our downfall, and the second Adam prevailed and brought our redemption. So having said that, having laid the foundation, having understood what's happening here, let's look at the first temptation, verses 1 through 4. The first temptation, if you are the son of God, since you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread, is the temptation to doubt God's provision and love during difficult times. One of Satan's oldest tricks goes all the way back to Genesis when he says, did God really say don't eat of the tree in the garden? He introduces to our hearts a seed of doubt. Rarely in my life has Satan just put an overt five-gallon bucket of evil in front of me and said, enjoy yourself. Comes out, no, I'm not doing that. But he makes the temptation seem like it would help me in some way. He makes it seem like it would satisfy me in some way. And even in our three temptations this morning, we, we, see, we see no temptation for Satan trying to get Jesus to rob a bank or commit financial fraud or commit adultery or kill someone. Matter of fact, to me, this temptation, <laughs> it seems really reasonable. Like if I'm 40 days in the wilderness and I've been fasting only liquid and I hadn't eaten and I'm at the end of that 40 days and somebody offers me some food or I know I can zap that rock and turn it into a loaf of hot buttered bread. That seems reasonable to me. Here's what this is. This is a picture of Israel and their 40-year journey in the desert. They had murmured, if you remember, and they had complained. But this was not the core of their problem. Their number one problem, Israel's, and our number one problem is they could not trust the Lord who had opened the Red Sea, given water from the rock, manna from heaven, made sure their shoes did not wear out and their feet did not swell, and then added a gourmet item to their menu, quail. To me, is gourmet. And yet, the scriptures tell us they still complained. 
Jesus, being a picture of the new Israel, had extreme hunger and was led to the desert by the Spirit as a part of God's plan to identify him as the Son of God for the people and with the people of God. And the first words he hears is, if or since you are the Son of God. Since you're the Son of God, Jesus, hey, you've done your 40 days. Make you some bread. You're the God of creation, so now create. Satan is not suggesting he do something evil. He's just suggesting that he feed himself. A man who's hungry needs some food. You're human, so eat. This temptation at its heart is a temptation to act independently of God. If God does care for me, this is how it sounds. If God, I'm sorry, if God does not care for me, why should I do what he says? The devil is suggesting subtly, but he's suggesting, Jesus, has God abandoned you? And if he has, you better look out for you. Now, there's no doubt that today the enemy of every one of our souls takes our physical circumstances, our physical and emotional, personal discomforts to make us doubt God and his love for us. Here's what happens. We evaluate God, which is a bad idea. Can I say that? But we've, thank you, you read my mind. Gluten-free communion bread is not the best for your throat. (laughs) We evaluate God and his character based on the circumstances in our lives. Therefore, we can be like a piece of grass blown in the wind. Now, I'm not saying in the midst of circumstances that are difficult, that we're not sad We're not angry, we're not hurt, we're not alone, we have all these feelings. But to doubt the character of God on our behalf, here's what happens. It's why we look for life in things that God says no to. Because we actually forget the reason that he says no is for our own human good and flourishing. Now I can tell you this, it it may surprise some of you, but I, I am not a perfect parent. And I have failed in my parenting. I didn't know what I didn't know. I wish I started parenting at 45. Then you're too old, right? But here's what I do know. 98.9% of the time when I told my kids no, it was not to ruin their lives. It was good for them. It was best for them. It was from a heart and place of love and care for them. What was Jesus' response? Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone. I want you to notice in his response, he gives no pushback to his sonship. He knows who he is. He didn't have to argue with the devil of hell about his being the son, promised son of the living God. But he does appeal to Scripture. And he appeals to scripture, the exact scripture that portrays him as a picture of Israel because he is the new Israel. 
He is connecting himself with Deuteronomy 8, where Moses is speaking to the people of God right before Moses' departure. Let me read you this, his response in full context. Deuteronomy 8, starting with verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. With great intentionality, Jesus aligns himself with old Israel so that those who come to know him would be the new Israel. A people who when led into the desert by the Spirit like old Israel is led into the desert by God, they would not complain and murmur, but they would trust God by doing only what his word approves of. The exact word, this is ironic, the exact word that old Israel failed to obey is the exact word that Jesus now obeys. The old Israel did not realize that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, what old Israel did not do, I do. Because in John, Jesus says, I don't do anything that my father doesn't tell me to do. In some ways, Jesus obviously is not saying there's not significant uh, importance to eating bread and food. But he is saying obeying the word of God is so important that if there is ever any kind of tension between what the word of God says and your difficult circumstances, the word of God must win hands down every time. And many times that will require self-denial. Jesus is 40 days in the desert. He is hungry. He knows he can zap that rock and turn it into bread. And he chooses not to. He denies himself. He denies his own hunger pain because he will not fall in the trap of not believing that his father loves and cares for him. This is where our faith gets tested. When you and I do what's right because the word of God demands it, and yet in the midst of that, we do what's right when our circumstances would give us every reason to do wrong and go against the word of God. This is called biblical faith. This temptation asks the question, can I trust God with, and you fill in the blank, whatever that circumstance is? And the answer is yes. Secondly, second temptation, verses five through eight. The second temptation is really a temptation to violate the first commandment or break the first commandment. This temptation is sort of an end justifies the means temptation. 
The devil takes Jesus, as we read on this supernatural whirlwind of a tour of the whole world, sort of a visionary experience where they could see the whole world and all of its power and glory and prestige at, the, at, this, at one time. And he offers this because if there's one thing Satan knew for sure, that the Father God has slated Jesus to be the King of kings and lords of lords. That day was coming. And so he now says to Jesus, Satan says, bow to me and it's all yours now. You don't have to wait for it. Why would you want to wait? Why do you want to need to go through all this suffering that you're going to have to go through to get where you're ultimately going to get anyway? Let me give it to you now. Look, Jesus, at what can be yours so here, a place where Jesus has nothing, Satan offers him everything. The bait has been placed on the hook. Will Jesus bite it? Renounce your allegiance to the Father and worship me. Let me give us a, a two-minute parenthesis here. I think it's important to remember that the devil cannot give all that he promises. And here's what we know of him. We know that he always promises high and he always delivers low. We bite that bait. It's never as good as he promised. It always hurts. It always brings pain. It always brings loss. It always brings death. And he promises it like it's the best thing ever. He does not have this power to promise what he promised. Now, I understand that the scriptures call him the Prince of Peace. I understand that the scripture states that he has an incredible influence in this broken and sinful world. But at the end of the day, this offer here by Satan is over-exaggerated. Even later in Luke, we'll see where Jesus spoke to the demons and the demons were fearful, indicating that they knew that their power was limited when it came to messing with the Son of God. So it's an oversell here. But what was Jesus' response to this second temptation? It says in your notes, you shall not worship the Lord your God. That is a misprint by me. And I'm blaming the devil. The devil made me do it. So please mark out the word not. That was kindly shown to me by 37 people after the first service. <laughs> I'm glad people care about truth around here and right doctrine. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jenna typed up my outline for me. He gets that from Deuteronomy 6.13. So often, you and I are tempted to take the easy way. Can you just say easy way with me? Don't you love the easy way? How many of y'all love the easy way? Don't you wish it was easier to lose weight? Yeah. Don't you wish it was easier for the patriots to lose? Right? <laughs> 
Like, like it is so human though. Like we love the easy way. But I love Jesus because he would not have anything to do with the easy way here. The first commandment says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And if Jesus gives way here, here's what you and I need to understand. This opens the door to every other kind of sin. When Paul gives us this long laundry list in the epistles of all kinds of different sins, what we need to understand is those things happen because of this. We break the first commandment and worship other gods. Little g is why we produce all these long lists of sins. The way to not sin or to sin less is not to focus on your long list of sins, but to focus on the why behind the heart, or why behind the sin or the heart behind what you do to sin. Justice with us, when we break this sin, it opens up a door to every other sin. Matter of fact, I would say most of our sinning comes from putting other gods, little g, before the one true God. Now, I want to recommend a book that I've recommended a time or two, but it, I think it's mandatory reading for every person that wants to grow and mature in Christ. It's called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller because it starts to unpack for us the things that we go after and worship, idols, little gods with a little g, those are the reasons we sin. Keller speaks in that book these words. An idol is anything or a little g god is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Meaning you are seeking your identity, your significance, your worth and your value by that thing. A man who wants success goes after success. And in that, when he gets it, finds that he has leaned his ladder against the wrong wall. And we can go through every sin like that. It drives us to break rules we once honored and to harm others and to harm even ourselves in order to get it. We do sin because we worship the wrong God. This temptation is about the centrality of God in our lives. God does not exist to bless us. We exist for him and we were made by him. Third temptation. Verses 9 to 12. This is a temptation if you would. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. And then Satan quotes scripture to show Jesus he quotes scripture to say, let, let me prove it to you. This is an attempt to twist and to distort the, God's word. Or to twist God's word, if you would, for a personal advantage. Or to distort God's word to make it mean what you want it to mean so that in some way life will work for you on your terms. Isn't that convenient? Here's what's, here's what's sneaky about Satan. 
twice in the other two temptations, Satan has come with the temptation and Jesus has fought it by quoting the scriptures. Certainly that says to you and I, knowledge of the scriptures is a part of fighting temptation. But Satan is so sneaky now, he comes in the back door and he says, Jesus, you keep coming back saying that we need to, you need to believe the word. Well, I'm going to quote the word to you. <laughs> and he quotes Psalm 91, 11, and 12. Psalm 91, 11, and 12, Jesus talks about God's provision for you that he'll catch you. His angels will rescue you if you jump from the top of this temple. Don't you believe the word, Jesus? Don't you trust God, Jesus? I didn't quite know the words to describe this, so I'll describe it this way. This is nut as a fruitcake faith. This is demonic faith. This is insane faith. Faith here is turned into a cheap presumption that you can get God to do what you want him to do just because you quote a Bible verse over and over and over. It's a seed of the prosperity gospel where you believe it, receive it, and speak it, and claim it. And if you say it with enough confidence and enough passion in the thousands of times, you can declare it to be true and also it always so benefits you. But in reality, the only benefit the prosperity gospel brings is to the person who actually is preaching it and getting the money that you give him so you can get back that thing you want. Jesus' response here is, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, 16. Jesus is not saying don't put him to the test. He himself is saying we, that he must not put the Lord God to the test. The principle here is this, is that scripture must be compared with scripture in order to get the true meaning of that scripture. Scripture must be interpreted by scripture as a whole. The little interpreted by the whole so that you get the meaning of the text. One of the first things I learned in school was a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. In order to make the Bible say anything I want it to say. We can prove near about anything from the Bible if we try hard enough. And yet biblical faith is something that trusts God and bows before his word and delights in his way and prioritizes what he prioritizes, that delights in his will being done and his power being shown, his truth being obeyed. And for a lot of biblically uninformed folks, faith has become maybe this privatized magic show where we quote a Bible verse and we run and jump off the temple and scream, catch me. Don't think this doesn't apply to you and I. There's a danger for every Christian, and I've done it accidentally, and so have you. There's a danger here to distort and twist God's word for our own personal advantage. We can quote verses about God's grace so much that personal holiness is distorted. 
We can talk about holiness so much that all you end up is with soul-crushing legalism. There must be this balance in Scripture because Scripture is balanced like this where God talks all the time about three ingredients, grace and truth and time, that we need all of those to change. One emphasis or leaning to one of those or admitting one of those and only talking about one of the other causes distortion. I remember... uh, when we first moved to Ohio, I lived in a little neighborhood and a little ranch house and a couple uh, houses down was a guy who came to me because I worked with the Cincinnati Reds and Cincinnati Reds were on a strike. Major League Baseball was on a strike and he's 35 years old, about 5'9", about 148 pounds with a little pudgy belly, 35 years old. And he came to me and said, Jeff, don't you work with the Cincinnati Reds? I said, yes. He said, hey man, how can I try out for Major League Baseball? They're having some tryouts. I said, when's the last time you played baseball? He said, back in high school. I, I politely, inside I was laughing and I was judging, I was judging him. I was thinking, you're too short, you're too fat, you're too old, you're too slow, you can't hit a curveball, you can't play Major League Baseball. And I tried to talk him out of it. You know what he did? He quoted Philippians 4.13 in my face. (laughs) I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I said, no, 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 you can't. (laughs) That's why people think Christianity is stupid because that's what we say to them. That's what athletes say. That's what successful people say because they've made it and you can too. No, I can't run a 4-4, so I can't play in the NFL. I've seen husbands justify being an emotional bully to their wives because of their God-given roles as the head. It's interesting they never quote Ephesians 5 where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I've seen a man come into my office and tell me this new doctrine that he discovered for an hour and 15 minutes and he never shut his mouth He discovered it and nobody else in all of Christendom has ever seen it or thought about it but him. The doctrine where sanctification equals your perfection, this out of heaven. I thought two things. I thought you were distorting God's word, one. And that doctrine, heretical doctrine, is as old as time itself. We could go on and on and on, but I have run out of time. So let me end with this. There are three temptations Luke writes about here. Jesus was tempted from every angle. And poverty and hunger on one side and offered wealth and power on the other. And the writer of Hebrews tells us this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus saves his people from their sin as their substitute exactly because he walks where we walk and did not sin. He wrestles with sin 
and yet knew no sin. And then he rose from the dead as the new Adam and the new Israel so that one day we will not be tempted to sin. Not only will we not be tempted to sin, but we will sin no more. But until that day happens, we must understand temptation, the anatomy of sin, and the why behind the what that the evil one is trying to get us to do. So this morning, take a few minutes to ask the question, so what? So what? Maybe pick one of those temptations, one that applies most to you, and do some self-healthy self-examination as you look at your areas of struggle and sin to find out the why behind the what. Take a minute to do just that.